Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This episode, after a couple of you asking following Tony's interview a few months ago, I think it was, uh, I am going to tell you the story of the very well-known British serial killer, Dr Harold Shipman. point asking this Caitlin but I think you've heard of Harold Shipman before yeah but I'm looking forward to seeing what you've got to say about it I'm looking forward to seeing if there's anything I don't know yeah there was more to it than the obvious as you would say okay so so I'll begin Harold Frederick Shipman was born on the 14th of January 1946 in Nottingham England he was the middle child of three His sister Polly was seven years older and his brother Clive was about four years younger. His father was a long distance lorry driver and was also called Harold. So to avoid confusion, Harold Jr. was often called Freddy or Fred. However, in this episode, I'll be calling him Harold or Shipman. So, you know, I'm not calling him Fred. Now, Harold Sr., his wife Vera, lived in a council estate and both were from working class families. However, his mum had middle class aspirations for all three of her children as she was denied this growing up. Now, this resulted her putting her kids on a pedestal, but Harold was the smartest, so he was put on an even bigger one. The Shipman family were Methodists, and Vera, the mum, she worked on keeping away undesirable influences from the children. Now, this involved things such as her not allowing the kids to play with other children in the neighbourhood, and repeatedly told the three of them that they were simply better than the other children around them. Which brings me to the whole putting them on a pedestal. In doing this, the children were very well behaved. There was never any shouting matches and Vera never really had to raise her voice at them as she had that kind of mum look that would quickly sort out their behaviour. Now Vera's behaviour clearly rubbed off on Harold as it's later said that although he had his opinions and he was quite arrogant, he never raised his voice at people. As I said a minute ago that Harold was the smartest of the three and he did really well in school well enough to actually gain acceptance into a grammar school for children who achieved big things academically. Because of this, Vera really put all her hopes on Harold for being able to live in the middle class life that she badly wanted for her kids. The entire family made sacrifices to make sure that he, Harold, had all the extra things that he needed to be able to excel in his education and attend his new school. This obviously was a huge advantage to Harold as he was practically placed on a throne and he was the favourite child even if it was never said. However, this isn't obviously so great for his development of his self. Being the favourite often leads to the child growing up believing they will get what they want when they want without any consequences or being held accountable for their actions and this is what I feel happened with Harold. Harold wasn't popular at school, but he wasn't an outcast either. He just kind of kept himself to himself. His school folk remember him being reserved and quiet. If some people were making jokes in class, he wouldn't laugh along. 
He went to the school dances, though, um, but he often brought his older sister, which people said just looked strange because as she was older, seven years, and she was much taller, they just looked awkward when they danced together. So that obviously turned heads. Now, Harold was very good at sports. He played rugby and did long distance running. And I think that's cross country, but I'm not too sure. He was the complete opposite from when he was in school compared to playing sports. He was very aggressive, competitive and boisterous when it came to his sports. Now, sadly, when Harold was in his teens, his mum became ill and was diagnosed with lung cancer. At the time, there wasn't effective treatments for this, and so she deteriorated really quickly. Towards the end of her life, the doctor made house visits to help with the pain and give her as much comfort as one could get in those circumstances. So he injected her with a lot of morphine, which interested Harold, and you'll kind of see why later on. Now, every afternoon, though, no matter what the pain she was in, she would always wait in a chair by the window with a cup of tea, waiting for Harold to come home from school so that he could tell her about his day. On the 1st of June 1963, Vera passed away at the age of 47. Now, this is absolutely awful for anyone to go through. And Harold was only 17 when his mum died. But if you look at it from in like a box kind of perspective this woman has made Harold Field so special like he is great he's amazing he, she was his number one supporter and she has now died now that reality is about to hit him as not everyone thinks the same nor will shower him with the amount of love and attention as he expects or is used to so in those sorts of circumstances that's when the child or teen or whoever kind of has to kind of get pushed into reality now, his mum's cancer had inspired Harold to study medicine. However, he failed to get into medical school when he first applied. On his second attempt in 1965, he was accepted to the University of Leeds Medical School. Whilst there, he was assigned housing in a private home, which was rented, uh, the rooms were rented to the medical students at the uni. And he was very hardworking, but he was his first taste of freedom since he was always kept under a watchful eye of his mum. One day when he was on the bus, he met a 17-year-old girl named Primrose Oxtaby, who had a lot in common. She was raised in a strict Methodist home, was working class, and had a strict mum who was also kept her isolated from the other children. But this, however, was pretty much all they had in common. As Primrose went to trade school, she studied art and design and then managed to get a job as a window dresser in a store in Leeds. So they got to Dayton and within months, Primrose became pregnant in 1966. Primrose's mum was obviously raging. She hated Harold for this. And she arranged for the two of them to get married with only each of their dads present and with no celebration afterwards. On the 14th of February 1967, their first daughter was born and all three of them moved into a small studio. Money was very tight as Harold was only starting his second year of medical school and Primrose had obviously just given birth. Finally though, in 1970, Harold Shipman graduated from medical school and completed two residences, one in paediatrics and the other in obstetrics. I'm awful at like pronouncing things, obviously, and gynecology. Obstetrician? Yeah, 
and gynecology that's the one right <laughs> now in april 1971 primrose and harold had their second child and that was a boy so during his third year as his OBGYN residency, Harold became addicted to a drug called pethidine, which is an opioid commonly used in childbirth. So he obviously had very access, like easy access to this. But moving on, he still got this drug addiction. In 1974, Harold took his first position as a general practitioner in a busy office where he made enemies as he was so confrontational and loved to win arguments as he felt so much smarter than everyone else he worked with. He frequently called the non-medical staff stupid. Now, this is really just setting the scene to what type of person this guy is, as he's really just one of those people who thinks they're better than anyone out there. Now, the other medical staff, though, did tolerate him and his behaviour as he was very hardworking. And as much as you would hate to admit it, he was a very skilled doctor. In February 1975, the Home Office Drug Inspectorate and the local police narcotics squad noticed that Harold was obtaining mega abnormal amounts of pethidine for injection from local pharmacies, which just doesn't add up to his client base. Now, they investigated this and after speaking with local pharmacists and the other doctors, as well as Harold himself, the police and the inspectorate were reassured that no drug abuse was occurring. However, very next month is when Harold kills his very first victim. Now, with all of that information, I'm actually going to take us ahead of time to begin with and tell you about Kathleen Grundy who was found dead in her home on the 24th of June 1998 at the age of 81. Kathleen Grundy was a very well-known and loved resident of Hyde which is just outside Manchester. She took part in arranged local events, she helped others in the community and at one time in her life she was also mayor for the local town. Now, on the Sunday before her death, her neighbour had seen her out in her garden trimming the bushes, looking completely well and fine. Kathleen lived alone and in all the days leading up to her death, she never once mentioned that she was feeling ill to anyone, not even her daughter, Angela Woodruff, who was close with her mum and they spoke on the phone regularly. Angela often joked that Kathleen was the most fit member of their family, even at the age of 81. Now, you may be thinking that this lady is a good age and anything can happen. However, it's just not adding up. She was practically as fit as a fiddle for someone of her age. And let's be real, she was probably fitter than you and I, Caitlin. Now, when Kathleen's physician, Dr. Harold Shipman, calls Angela to tell her the sad news of her mother's passing, Angela was completely shocked. She asked Dr. Shipman for further information as one would but he was vague in his response he said that on the day before Kathleen died he went to go see her for a routine matter and there she complained about not feeling well so they both decided that he would make a house call the next morning to take a blood sample for what he claimed was a study he was doing 
Harold arrived at Kathleen's the next morning at about 8am because he said that the blood sample needed to be obtained first thing in the morning. As Dr Shipman had been her trusted doctor for years, why on earth would she have had any reason to doubt him or question his intentions? Because she didn't. So, in the immediate aftermath of Kathleen's unsus unsuspected and out of the blue death, her daughter Angela was very suspicious of Harold Shipman and so started her own investigation. During this investigation, Angela found out that her late mother actually left her entire estate to Dr. Harold Shipman. So obviously this does not sit right, it doesn't look right, it doesn't even make sense as they were a close family. So alarm bells obviously start to go off and her fears were confirmed. Now Angela's push for answers actually led to the catching of the UK's most prolific known serial killer of today. Now, between 1970 and 1998, almost 30 years of Dr. Harold Shipman practicing medicine, he is likely to have killed over 250 people. The majority of his victims were elderly and even in every single one of them were his own patients. Now, this is not your typical gruesome serial killer. There's no blood and gore going on here. This isn't the likes of, you know, Dennis Nelson or the Wests. This is your local doctor, neighbour, friend who you're supposed to and do trust with your life, especially when it comes to the medical side of things. These deaths were classed as natural. His victims were vulnerable and elderly and very unsuspecting of people to question why they had died. Now, if it wasn't for Angela Woodruff, who even knows if Harold Shipman would have eventually gotten caught or if he'd carried on killing for as long as possible. Now, Angela queried her late mother's will as it just did not sit right with her. And even with Harold playing it down and acting like it wasn't a suspicious thing and that him and her mother were close and it makes complete sense for her to leave her entire estate to him. But Angela, thankfully, does not back down. Now, it appears that the will shock horror is actually a forgery which I will get into in a second. Another reason for believing Kathleen's death was suspicious was that like I said earlier she was still always busy and moving at her age and she was still working in the local shop two days a week and she volunteered for various charities and she had also just returned home from a holiday in Derbyshire, Derbyshire sorry, where quote she was the life of the party. Now back to the will. This was all happening just three weeks after Kathleen's death when Angela found out about the new will. It appears what happened was that her mum had typed up a new will and posted it to an unknown solicitor in Hyde to deal with. Now this is completely out of the blue for Kathleen to begin with because if I haven't already mentioned it, Angela was in fact a very successful solicitor who would often help her mum out with legal matters so why did she not just ask for help this time, as she had helped write up her initial will in 1986, whereby Angela and her two sons were to inherit Kathleen's estate? Now, yes, to play devil's advocate, we could say that is because this time Kathleen was taking Angela out of the will, so why on earth would she go to her about it? However, you and I know, Caitlin, that that is not the case here. 
Now, the unknown solicitor received Kathleen's new will in the post along with a typewritten letter requesting that he log this for her. The letter read, Dear Sir, I enclose a copy of my will. I think it is clear and intent. I wish, I wish Dr Shipman to benefit by having my estate. I would like you to be the executor of the will. I intend to make an appointment to discuss this and my will in the near future. So the will and letter is written on the same type of paper and it was done on a faulty typewriter, which I'll tell you why shortly. Now Kathleen has signed the bottom of the will and the letter where it states that Dr Shipman is the sole beneficiary of her £400,000 estate. It also states, quote, I give all my estate, money and home to my doctor. My family is not in need and I want to reward him for all the care he has given to me and the people of Hyde. He is sensible enough to handle any problems this may give him. Lastly, the will also stated that she wished to be cremated, which is a major red flag as Kathleen has always stated that she wanted a full burial and to never be cremated. Now, this new will was dated the 9th of June 1998, which is only 15 days before her death, which again, another red flag. Now, this was actually the first contact that the solicitor's office and Kathleen had which is in itself is quite suspicious. Why would you send a solicitor your will? You would go and meet them and, and type it up and talk it through. Now, four days after Kathleen's death, though, the, the solicitor received a second letter on the same paper regarding Kathleen, and it was typewritten as well, and it was from a J. Smith informing the solicitor of her death. Now, the new solicitor thankfully was not willing to distribute Kathleen's estate without further information and so the office tracked down Angela and sent her photocopies of the will and letter. Upon receipt of these copies Angela immediately saw how sloppy the documents were, it was amateur-like and it was not written how her mother would write. There were typos, the formatting was off and also the typewriter used for this was clearly faulty as some of the letters were faint and difficult to read, which means that the typewriter keys did not evenly strike the ribbon. Now, Angela knew right away that this would not have been her mother's work, as it was so bad that it would have embarrassed her mum, who actually used to work as a secretary and later a teacher. So she knew how things, especially documents and, and everything like typewriting work, should be presented. Now we get to the actual signature. This was completely off. It was too large and looked like it had actually been traced. Because of all of this, the solicitor urged Angela to go to the police with all of this information. However, before she went, she investigated the two witnesses whose signatures were on the document. Now remember, this is a legal document and you need witnesses to sign all these things. Now one witness acknowledged signing a document in Dr Shipman's office but said it was folded over so only the line for his signature could be seen. Why you wouldn't ask to see the document your accountant's signing is kind of beyond me, but I guess if you're busy or you trust the person asking you to sign, you may just do it, but I don't agree with that. Anyway, it was the 90s. He was obviously, though, shocked to learn that he had been a witness to somebody's will, because that he did not know. And the second witness flatly denied that it was even her signature. 
So on the 24th of July 1998, Angela took the forged will to the local police in Warwickshire, who then passed it along to the Greater Manchester Police. The document actually set off alarm bells straight away because only four months earlier, Dr Shipman was the centre of an investigation focusing on the high number of patients who died in his care. These suspicions were raised by a Dr Linda Reynolds, who was a partner in the Brook Surgery practice, which was also in Hyde. The practice was actually directly across the street from Dr Shipman's sole practice, and the physicians at the Brook Surgery often countersigned death certificates for Harold, along with other medical documents. Dr Reynolds first became concerned in March 1998 about how many of of Harold's elderly patients were dying in suspiciously similar circumstances. Now with her concerns, Dr Reynolds alerted the coroner for the Greater Manchester South District with her findings, who initiated a limited police investigation based on her concerns. The Manchester detective assigned to the case, though, concluded that nothing criminal occurred and the inquiry was practically closed as quick as it was opened. So jump forward just four months to the forged will. The police inspector who was head of this investigation had Kathleen's will processed for fingerprints. And guess what? There was only one set on there. Now, you may think Kathleen's, but you'd be wrong. The only set of fingerprints found on this will were those belonging to Dr. Harold Shipman. Because of the... Exactly. Now, you'd think Kathleen's may have been on there, or even the people that countersigned it. Just Harold Shipman. Now, obviously, because of this finding, the police inspector knew that the next steps were to exhume Kathleen's body and conduct an autopsy with Angela's permission. Now, obviously, they needed Angela's permission because they had to... They had to dig up the grave. They also took soil samples from the graveside just to make sure that nothing had leaked into the coffin to make any evidence become void. On the same day, the police also obtained a search warrant for Shipman's office so that if he were to find out about the autopsy, he didn't have time to destroy any evidence. Shipman was arrogant, as always, and dismissive towards the police who were questioning him. However, he did actually admit to owning the typewriter that was used for creating the will. His excuse, though, was that Kathleen asked to borrow it quite a lot. However, when the typewriter was checked for prints, only Shipman's and his wife were found on it. Which, I'm like, how could you be, you're such a smart man, how could you not think that fingerprints are a thing? Now, I know it's only probably about 20 years since all of that DNA thing came about but like I know but still it's that thing of like he's so intelligent but he's got no common sense yeah which happens a lot (laughs) anyway um again on the same day the police had also obtained a warrant to search his home it was actually quite a shock to see the state that his home was in because every room had piles of clothes dirty washing dirty dishes and just a bunch of clutter lying about which I know it's not awful but it's not what you would have expected for a doctor's home. And one of the policemen used the great saying of, it was the type of place you'd wipe your shoes on the way out, which I I like that saying. Now, the police found boxes and boxes of patient files in a few rooms, along with plastic bags also filled with files. And they also came across a hoard of jewellery, such as rings, bracelets, 
necklaces and earrings, ranging from low value to high value, and a mix of pieces that clearly weren't new to this kind of era. Like they weren't, you know, fashion pieces of this time. So it's not like they were just bought. And most of the rings seized were also clearly way too small for his wife's fingers. So why did he have them? And now the police believe that they may belong to his deceased patients. While these searches were going on, Kathleen's autopsy was taking place. They found that she had healthy organs and no other signs of disease. The only thing about her physical condition that they could find was that she was in extraordinarily good shape for her age. And this is Harold Chipman trying to say like, oh, she had heart problems, she had this, she had that. Clearly she was bloody fantastic for the age of 81. Now they take some tissue samples and they send them away to a specialist lab for checking. So before obviously the results come back, we'll jump to the 20th of August 1998 and that is when the newspapers and press etc they are very aware of what is going on they have got this investigation and they are printing it out like they always do now due to this press coverage though many people came to the defense of Dr Shipman however on the other hand a lot of people also came forward with their own stories of suspicion so it was kind of like a the pros and cons of the press shall we say now, eight days later, on the 28th of August, the tissue sample results came back. The results show that Kathleen has lethal amounts of diamorphine in her system. Dr Harold Chipman is then arrested and charged with forgery due to the will and the letter, attempting to obtain property by deception and for the murder of Kathleen Grundy. Whilst this was going on, the police then started to investigate the deaths of some of Shipman's previous patients. Now on that note, let me take you all the way back again to 1975, so 24, 23 years ago. Now remember in February 1975 was when he got off the hook for the drug abuse that they were looking into. He had a normal amount of pethidine for injection, and that was what Shipman was getting prescribed to his patients, but it didn't actually amount up to his client base and their usage. However, like I said, he was off the hook. So we move on from that. I do say moving on, but we're just going a month to March 1975. 17, 17, sorry, 70 year old Eva Lyons was suffering from terminal cancer. Shipman was her doctor, and so he paid her a house visit and gave her an injection through a vein in her hand. An autopsy later on confirms that Shipman actually inserted an intentional overdose, which killed Eva. Now, to be again devil's advocate, you might think that Eva Lyons may have asked him to do this, terminal cancer, albeit still illegal. Now, around about the time of Eva's death, Harold started to experience blackouts after he fell in the bath at home and banged his head. Now, following this, he then told his colleagues that he suffers from epilepsy, which wasn't great news and it didn't go down well. The physicians regularly made house calls to their patients. And if he was unable to do this, then he wouldn't be able to do his job properly and therefore he would lose his job. Because of this, though, his wife, Primrose, actually stepped in and drove Harold to each patient's house to save his job. So every single appointment Primrose drove him to which I guess that's dedication. 
Now jump to June 1975, when the Home Office Drugs Inspectorate opens a second inquiry for Harold's obsessive drug orders, as the large amounts of pethidine that he keeps ordering does not match up with the practice's inventory. So where is it? But again, Harold gets away with this because of the inadequate bookkeeping of the practice. So the drug inspectorate could not prove abuse. So that's twice they've come along to think there's something happening here. Twice he got away with it. In the summer of 1975, a receptionist from the practice where Shipman worked at the time went to the chemist where doctors had their patients' prescriptions filled. She saw an open control drug ledger whereby Shipman had ordered frequent and obsessive amounts of pethidine in the names of their patients. The receptionist was concerned with what she saw and so she shared this information with the other doctors. An investigation discovered that Harold was actually writing prescriptions for patients who, when contacted, had confirmed that they had never even taken pethidine before. So they confronted Shipman. Surprisingly, though, he came out with that he had an addiction. So he just openly said it, which started when he was in medical school. He asked that they forget about this matter and, like, you know, just chuck it under the rug. I came clean. But like any workforce would, they do not ignore this. So instead, they fired Shipman and insisted that he go to rehab to overcome his addiction. He was absolutely raging, but in order to keep his medical licence, he knew he had to go. Harold spent five months in a private psychiatric hospital where successfully he withdrew from pethidine. He was diagnosed with moderately severe depression and was put onto antidepressants and his general health and his state started to improve. He was though registered as a drug user, which meant that he had to disclose this information when applying for new jobs. So that sort of part of his past and things, he could not sweep that under the rug, no matter how much he wanted to. Now, during the time at the hospital, a police officer questioned him about the forged prescriptions and he told the officer that he only recently started injecting pethidine because of the stress of working with the other doctors in the practice. So he is just playing the blame game here. The officer noticed that Harold had collapsed veins in his arms and legs. So thankfully, being an experienced police officer, he knew that Shipman was talking absolute nonsense as this wasn't something he had just started doing because your veins don't go like that. This has been years of abuse. As this was all happening to Shipman, him and Primrose were not earning an income and they were forced to sell the family home. So Primrose and the kids moved into her parents' house. And it's also said that the new occupants of their house told the neighbours that their house was so filthy it required extra cleaning before they could even move in. So that's just like their house 20 odd years later. So it was just the way they lived. It wasn't a, like, you know, just something that happened. Now, Harold was released from hospital in December 1975 and he was no longer having blackouts or seizures, which is an indication that drug abuse, not epilepsy, was the cause, which meant he could start driving again. After being released and being able to drive again, he soon found work as a medical officer in Durham. He was a local liaison between local physicians and authorities. Whilst in this position, though, he did not see any patients or prescribe any medications, but this was just not satisfying enough for him. 
He just did not like this role and he was determined to become a GP in a practice again to see patients. This then brings us forward just over a year or so to October 1977. He saw an ad in the British Medical Journal journal for a medical position in Hyde. During his interview, he was honest and open about his drug addiction and they appreciated this. So the other practitioners welcomed Harold to their practice where he inherited a roster of over 2,000 patients from the departing doctor. Due to being in large amounts of debt, due to being charged a fine for forgery and for taking out a large loan to join the practice, Harold worked mega long hours and was what I'd call an alcoholic. Now, he had to take a loan out to join the practice because most doctor practices, you know, they're owned by the physicians, the GPs. So if he took out his share, they would then buy part of the, the rent for the building, they'd buy the equipment, everything like that was split between them all. However, any money he made by seeing patients would be his own. So because of this, he built up a large patient list and he often covered night and weekend shifts for the others. He was also blocking up off some of his afternoons for patient home visits, which the other practitioners were not in the habit of doing so much. He made himself available to his patients 24-7. He spent time with them and gave them his full attention. He was a very popular and well-liked man by the doctors, the community, everyone, apart from his office staff. Like all his previous employments, he was arrogant and treated them like they were stupid and he was above them all. Now, in hindsight, this may have been so that he could get away with killing as many people as possible. However, that is just something to think about at this stage. Not the fact that he was um, awful to the people, the office workers. I mean, the fact that he had so many patients and he was, you know, working 24-7. Now, he especially hated the office manager. They did not get along at all because she wouldn't fire the office staff that he asked her to. He also talked down to her and treated her like rubbish. During the last 18 months of him working in that practice, he actually refused to speak with her and made her write everything down. The other practitioners admitted that he was pushy and wanted his own way, but he was polite to them. The nurses, on the other hand, confirmed that he was very controlling and that he wanted to do his own injections and blood samples. Shipman always had to prove that he had better medical knowledge than the rest of them all and that he was smarter and better than everyone there, rather like his old place and everything he did in life. All in all, he was a narcissist. He had an inflated ego, loves attention, is arrogant, patronising and he lacks empathy. And this could be taken all the way back to obviously when his mum put each and one of the kids on a pedestal and said they are better than everyone. Now, by 1978, Dr Shipman had actually murdered four of his current patients, but nobody knew about this yet. The youngest of the four was 73-year-old cancer patient who Shipman had prescribed opioids. He also had two other cancer patients where he prescribed the same. Now, investigators believe that this is where he was able to obtain a backlog of drugs, again, which helped him kill his fourth victim who was an eight to eight year old patient on the 20th of December, 1978. 
We are in 1978, four victims down, but Harold was only just beginning. Who knew there would be 20 more years of killings before he was finally taken down for this, his heinous crimes? If you'd like to hear the end of Harold's story and how he's finally taken down, which also involves the help of a taxi driver, please join us both for part two next week. <laughs>